Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Now, if you would this morning, uh, take out your Bibles and turn in them to Revelation chapter number 1, the very last book of the New Testament. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under a seat in front of you. You can take that Bible and turn the last portion of it to page 190, and you would be at Revelation chapter number 1. Now, we've been involved in a series of messages that we have called crossover, crossover from death to life began a week ago, and then the second one was Friday night, and today we're coming to message number three, which we have entitled, The Greatest Victory. And we are here today on Easter Sunday morning celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is a very bright event against a very dark background. And sometimes we forget that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a solution to a dilemma, an answer to a problem, and that problem was the problem of death. Now, death is something we don't like to talk a lot about in our culture, and yet death is around us every day. We see it in the news. Death will, from time to time, touch your family. It will touch your friends. And it's just fascinating that we don't like to address the issue of death. But truth be known, men and women, death is the ultimate enemy in your life and in mine. And a lot of times when there's death, what shows up? Flowers. But all the flowers in the world will never cover the pain, cannot cover the fear and the hurt that comes from the specter of death. One of my favorite quotes of all time is by a Canadian scientist by the name of G.B. Hardy. G.B. Hardy basically boiled life down to the bottom line, and, and that is this. He said, I only have two questions when it comes to this whole area of religion and spiritual things. Here are my questions. Number one, did anyone ever conquer death? And number two, did he make a way for me to do it also. And there are a lot of people in our culture who have struggled with this issue of death and the problem that it brings. Bertrand Russell, for example, struggled with and wrestled with the futility that he saw in death. He wrote these words. He said, the life of man is a long march through the night, surrounded by invisible foes, tortured by weariness and pain. One by one, as they march, our comrades vanish from our sight, seized by the silent orders of omnipotent death. He goes on to say, brief and powerless is man's life. On him and all his race, the slow, sure doom falls. For man, condemned today to lose his dearest, tomorrow himself to pass through the gates of darkness, it only remains to cherish the lofty thoughts that ennoble his little day. G.B. Hardy said, I only want to know two things. Number one, did anyone conquer death? Number two, did he make a way for me to do that too? Many of us know 
Sigmund Freud by name, the father of psychiatry, someone who analyzed a lot about life, which you may not know is he also wrestled with the daunting dilemma of death. And he wrote these words. And finally, there is the painful riddle of death, for which no remedy at all has been found, nor probably ever will be. G.B. Hardy said, when you look at everything, it really comes down to two questions. Number one, did anyone conquer death? Number two, did he make a way for me to do it also? Well, the good news I have for you today is that there is someone who stands with the answers to Hardy's question. And we see that person in Revelation chapter number one. By the way, the entitled title of this book, the real true title of the book is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a book that talks about the person of Jesus Christ. And I want you to see what was happening to John in verse 10 of Revelation 1. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice. And in verse 11, he tells us what the voice was saying. The voice said, this loud voice, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. And then I want you to notice what happens in verse 12. He says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And then notice verses 13 to 16. As he turns to see this voice, in the middle of the lampstands, he said, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, verse 15, when it has been made to glow in the furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand, verse 16, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. An awesome figure that John sees. His face like the sun shining in its strength. Think of the sun when it's at the height of the day on a clear sky. Have you ever tried to look at an unshielded sun? You really can't do it, can you? You have to turn your head away. And that's what it was like when he turned to look at this figure, who, of course, is the resurrected Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice what happens. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He was seeing Jesus Christ in his glory, and he was just knocked down by the glory of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Now, you need to remember, this is the exact same apostle during those days when Jesus was with the disciples and when they would just kind of casually lay around. It was this apostle who would recline his head on Jesus' chest. But now he sees the resurrected Jesus. 
He can't even look. It's like looking into the sun. And he falls like a dead man, having been knocked down by the glory of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Let your eyes go back to verse 17. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And then look at this little tender moment. The awesome, glorified Jesus Christ places his right hand on John. And he says to John, do not be afraid. Now, literally, in the original, it says this, stop being afraid. I know you're afraid as you've seen me in my awesome glory, but stop being afraid. And then I want you to notice that Jesus identifies himself to John in two ways. Number one, he says to John, I am the eternal one. Do you see it there at the end of the verse? I am the first and the last. I am the Alpha and the Omega. John, I am the eternal one. And then he goes on to say, not only I am the eternal one, but he says, I am the resurrected one. Notice verse 18. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. An awesome picture of a resurrected Jesus. But then Jesus says something that really captures my attention, and this is really all an introduction to get to what comes next out of the mouth of Jesus. Do you see it there in verse 18? Second part of the verse. He says to John, I have the keys of death and Hades. That is an extraordinary, remarkable statement for someone to say. I have the keys to death in Hades. G.B. Hardy said, there's only two things I really want to know. <laughs> number one, did anybody conquer death? And number two, really more importantly, did he make a way for me to do it also? And the next few moments, I want to take some time to talk about three things. Number one, I want to talk about Jesus' accomplishment. And then I want to talk about his promise. And then on an Easter Sunday, I want to think about our response to those first two things. So we're going to look at his accomplishment. We're going to look at his promise. And then we're going to reflect on our response to those things. So let's begin by looking at his accomplishment. And I want you to see when we're thinking about his accomplishment, there are two prongs to that. Prong number one of his accomplishment is the reality of his death. Remember, he said, I was dead, and he indeed died. We know from all that even Jesus said that his death had been planned by God. We see this over and over again in the Gospels. For example, in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, it says that Jesus began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. We see it from Mark chapter 10 where another occasion, Jesus took the 12 aside and he was telling them what was going to happen to him. 
saying, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will deliver him up to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit upon him and scourge him and, yes, kill him. Speaking of himself. And three days later, he will rise again. So when we talk about his accomplishment, the Part of that is, the first prong of that is the reality of his death. It was planned by God. Peter in Acts chapter 2 says this. He says, Jesus of Nazareth was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. He was predicted and planned by God. And secondly, I want you to note Regarding the reality of his death, it was, it was carried out by professionals. You know, it wasn't someone who just didn't know what they were doing, who was executing him. We learned from John chapter 19 a little bit more about that. We had Roman soldiers, their precise job, these Roman soldiers who took Jesus, was to execute people. That's what they did. That was their military service. And we know that the Jewish authorities were very concerned because the Sabbath was coming, so they wanted these people being crucified to be down off the cross before 6 p.m. when the Sabbath began. So the soldiers would come when they wanted you to finally die. They would break your legs because by pushing on your legs, you could keep yourself alive. So they broke the legs of the two on either side of Jesus, but when they came to Jesus, they could tell that he was dead. didn't need to break his legs. But they were experts, they were professionals. And so in order to verify that, we learned that they took a spear and they thrust it into Jesus' side. Why did they do that? They wanted to see what came out. Because what came out would tell them whether or not he was dead and confirm his death. And indeed, he died. We talk about the accomplishment of Jesus. The first prong of that is the reality of his death. The second prong is the reality of his resurrection. He was raised by God the Father. Turn with me to the book of Acts and chapter number 2. Acts chapter 2. And I want you to see in Acts chapter 2 the message that clearly kept coming from the disciples. And it was that Jesus was raised... By God the Father. Look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 24. Well, we can just back up again. Verse 23, this is where we're talking about he was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. He's speaking to the Jewish authorities. But, notice verse 24, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. He was raised by God the Father. Look at chapter 3 and verse 15. You put to death, verse 15, the prince of life whom God the Father raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Chapter 4 and verse 10. He said, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. 
He was raised by God the Father. Look at chapter 5 and verse 30. I'm just giving you a feel for this. It was an incessant message over and over again. Chapter 5 and verse 30. It says, Then the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. That's the reality of his resurrection. He was raised by God the Father, and his resurrection was witnessed by people. And you can go to the resurrection chapter of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, and it tells us there that Jesus was raised on the third day, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is another name for Peter. He appeared to the 12. He appeared to 500 people at once. He appeared to James, and he appeared to Paul. Now, why are those appearances, and why is all that witnessing so significant? Well, just think about it for a moment. Take Peter. Where do we see Peter at the time of Jesus' arrest? We see a cowardly Peter. We see Peter actually standing at a warming fire when a very, very young slave girl comes up to that fire and she says, pointing at Peter, he knew Jesus of Nazareth. And what does Peter do? Three times with cursing, he said, never met the man. Never met the man. And he's talking just to a slave girl. But what happens after the resurrection? Peter's transformed. He is courageous. And in Acts chapter 4, he's not just talking to some slave girl. He's actually accusing the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel, of having executed the Messiah. Men and women, that's the reality of the resurrection. Take the 12. Where do we see the 12 as Jesus is arrested? You don't. They are scattered. They run for the hills. They are discouraged. In fact, what's really interesting is after the resurrection, to show you how they were not really, even though he told them that I will be killed and will be raised from the dead, they never believed that. They didn't buy that. The very first time they see the resurrected Jesus, you know what they say? We just saw a ghost. It wasn't. Well, you know, Jesus said he would be raised from the dead, and, and he is now. And we, you know, they, they were skeptical. But what happens to the disciples? They become the spearhead of Christianity. And, and they so hold to what they saw with their eyes that most of them died violent deaths because they were followers of Jesus Christ. That is the reality of the resurrection. It was. Witnessed by 500 people at one time, Paul tells us. Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but mass hallucination is virtually impossible. 500 people at once saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. And when Paul writes those words 23 years later, he says, most of them remain alive to this day. You take James. You remember who James was? James was the Lord's half-brother, same mother, different father. What does his brothers think of Jesus? Oh, Jesus, he's off his rocker. He's, 
insane. That's what James and his brothers said. But after the resurrection, what do you have? You have James being the leader of the movement that's following Jesus of Nazareth in Jerusalem. That is the reality of the resurrection. Now, in in Revelation 1, when Jesus says, I have the keys, he's talking about his accomplishment. He's talking about his death and his resurrection. G.B. Hardy said, there's only two things I really want to know. Number one, did anybody conquer death? And number two, did he make a way for me to do it also? When he says, I have the keys to death and Hades, what does that really mean? Well, keys are symbolic. They're symbolic of someone who has authority over something. He's basically saying, I have authority over death and Hades and hell. I have authority, Jesus is saying, regarding what happens beyond the grave. I have authority over that. And keys are also symbolic of release. When you have the keys, you get to release someone. A number of years ago, I went up to the Oklahoma County Jail And it was to see a man who had been arrested on a cocaine distribution charge. I don't know if you've ever gone into a situation like that. But it's very interesting because if you want to get to the visitation rooms, you have to go through a series of locked doors. And there's just something ominous about seeing a reinforced steel door close and lock behind you. Especially if, there are, especially if there are several of them as you go into the inner part of the prison. But you know, as I went through that experience, I really wasn't that worried because, you see, the one with the keys had the authority and actually had promised to release me after my visit. And Jesus says, when it comes to death and Hades, he says, I have the keys. I have the authority to release you. That is his accomplishment, which leads us to the second thing I want to look at, and that is his promise. His promise. You can go to a death scene in John chapter 11, it's verse 25, it may say on the slide 35, but John eleven twenty-five. it's at a death scene, and here's what happens. Jesus turns to Martha, and here's the promise. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. Did you catch it? He who believes in me and trusts in me, in my accomplishment, shall live even if he dies. John 14, 19, Jesus says, because I live, you shall live also. G.B. Hardy said, I just want to know two things. Did anyone conquer death? And did he make a way for me to do it too? 
And the answer to his first question is, yes, there is somebody who conquered death. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the living one who was dead, but he is alive forevermore. Is there an answer to his second question? And the answer is yes. There is one who has the keys to death and Hades. Having looked at his promise, it leads us to the third element we wanted to look at today, and that is our response. And it seems to me that there's only two responses that we could have. And the first one is to trust in Christ as Savior. And I don't know your heart, but that's the response we ought to have. In Romans 10, it says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, you will be rescued, you will be delivered. And I just have to tell you what an incredible comfort it is to have a personal relationship with the one who has the keys to death and Hades or hell. And I would just appeal to you, I don't know all of you well, but the relationship you either have or don't have with Jesus Christ will determine your destiny for all of eternity. And the tomb that is headed for us in an inevitable way does not need to be a period at the end of the sentence of our life. It can be a conjunction leading us to life beyond the grave. And I, I would have to believe that there are some who God is calling today to trust in him as Savior. I just want you to know he's waiting there with open arms. And I want you to know this idea of trusting in Christ as Savior, it's really a heart transaction. It's not so much, well, someone needs to get from their seat, go to a certain place, they need to do certain things. It's what goes on inside here. If you believe in your heart that he died for you and that he rose again from the dead, you will be rescued from death in Hades. And so I would encourage you, if you've never done that, you don't have to do anything special. Heart transaction can take place right where you are seated. And then the second response I think we would have would be to worship him as Lord, especially for those of us who know him. You know, it's interesting to see what happens there in Revelation chapter 1. John says, I heard, I turned, I saw, I fell down. G.B. Hardy said, there's only two things I want to know. Did anybody ever conquer death? And did he make a way for me to do it too? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that the reality is that Jesus 
overcame death in Hades. The reality is that a victory has been won. And not only should we trust in him as our savior and our rescuer from sin and judgment, but we should worship him as Lord. Because he lives, we will rise. And because he lives, we shall live. No other response than to sing songs of praise to such a God. Let us do that. Amen.